Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday to gather together and to sit under the means of grace and to encourage one another, to exhort one another, and together to look into the details of our mutual salvation that you've graciously provided for us in Christ. We pray for the saints around the world that listen in at various times after we put this on the Internet. We pray for them. May they know that we care about them and pray for their well-being as well. Give us wisdom and understanding, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are um, 2 Corinthians 7:14. For if in anything I have boasted to him about you, I was not put to shame. But as we spoke all things to you in truth, so our boasting before Titus proved to be the truth. Now there's a conditional here, if, and so he doesn't specifically say what he had told Titus about them. This term boasting, by the way, is a favorite that Paul uses many different times, both in a negative and positive sense. Um, He uses it in a negative sense when people are boasting in a way that doesn't give glory to God or show some sort of self-reliance or works orientation. That would be a bad thing. He uses it in a positive sense about boasting in the Lord, and sometimes he uses it in a positive sense about boasting about what he believes God has done in somebody else's life, and that's how he's using it here, okay? So that even if they do repent and do do what's right, it's because there's a work of God's grace going on. The conditional probably indicates that before Titus's visit, Paul was somewhat tentative about this because, as we know, he wasn't sure that they were going to repent or that they're going to receive Titus or Paul's instructions. So in one sense or another, Paul had commended the Corinthian church to Titus and sent him, believing that it was better for him to send Titus after he had sent the severe letter than for Paul to go himself. And he explained that earlier in chapters 1 and 2, why he didn't go himself and... When Titus came back, they responded with they had responded with repentance. So this is kind of a summary of what we've already covered in this verse. I have a couple of quotes here that put this in in perspective. Because of the result of the, says Barnett, because of the result of the visit, Paul is not ashamed at having expressed his confidence to Titus. Rather, as everything he said to the Corinthians was true, a probable rebuttal to their questioning of his integrity related to declared travel arrangements. That was in chapter 1. So his pride about them in the presence of Titus had also proved true. That's the refreshment. How is Paul to be able to be confident about the Corinthian response to Titus' visit? In our view, it is because he knew that because they had received the word of God, the spirit of God was in them. That's the real amazing thing about the Corinthians correspondence. That something maybe we can learn from. The amazing thing is, as messed up as this church is, Paul seemed to always be quite sure that they were Christians. Okay? And he doesn't anathematize them like he did the Galatians. The Galatians had received a different gospel, and Paul was just had it with them. He called them foolish and fallen from grace. And and whatever you can imagine that was bad, he he said to the Galatians. But the Corinthians, for as bad as it was, for the compromises that they'd made with the pagan world, he continually believed that God had done a work of the Spirit in them. Now, I believe that must have been based on his first, their initial response to the gospel. And the fact that he knew some of the people there really didn't know the Lord, or he was convinced that they did, for whatever reason. So being convinced that God had indeed saved them, and that they did have the Holy Spirit at work in them, that made him confident that when Titus went with truth from God, that they're going to respond correctly to it. I think that what we can learn from that is that when we see people go seriously astray, as we've certainly seen in much of the evangelical world today, we need to realize that some of the people 
are actually Christian. And they actually know the Lord. And if that's the case, we can have some confidence that if we preach the truth to them, that there'll be some response. That they'll respond because there's something there. I, I, someone, one of you, I don't know if it was you, Jeremy, so one of you told me a story about preaching to a church that you used to go to. Was that you? Well, why should I tell your story? <laughs> if you don't have to tell it, I don't want to put you on the spot. Okay, Jeremy's going to tell his own story. Well, I was, this old church I used to go to, I was given the opportunity from the pastor to share a message. He was going to be gone on vacation that week, so I was figuring, okay, sure, I'll take an opportunity to share the gospel because I never, it was never clearly given at the church. And so I go through, use tons of scripture references, and I share the gospel, full forth, law, gospel, everything. And at the very end of the service, it was longer. It was I went a whole hour. Usually the pastor goes maybe 25, 30 minutes. And, uh, it An was, hour of the gospel. Yeah. But, <laughs> wow. But, but uh, well, it was God, God giving me things to say with, through the scripture. I was just trying to get people to look at the scripture, look at how much you can get into the scripture. And after I got done, at the end of the day, after prayer, you know, anybody come up for prayer or anything? And I've never seen people leave the church quicker. <laughs> Whereas there were two people who came up to me afterwards and said, wow, I haven't heard that in years. Praise God for you saying that. So two people yeah. there really responded and yeah. really understood. But yeah. most people just left. Okay. So having sat in a secret church that was filled up with a lot of probably people that weren't Christian and then never heard the gospel, he preaches the gospel, and immediately the true Christians stand up and said, Wow, thank you. Why? Because true Christians are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit testifies about Christ. And when Christ is preached, true Christians always will rejoice. And Paul rejoiced that Christ was preached even by people that were seeking their own vain glory. At least they... they and so uh, you, can, you can assume that this is the case across the board. There may be churches where the gospel hasn't been proclaimed clearly for years and years and years, but God still has his remnant in there. And if somebody starts preaching the gospel, they'll, they'll respond. And so I would, that, thanks for sharing that story. So that's what happened there. But on the other hand, you see the uh, negative effects of not preaching it over the years. Because pretty soon the church fills up with people that are unregenerate, and then you start having all kinds of problems because people who don't have a work of grace going on in their lives have the pro they don't they're not overcoming their sin problem because they don't have the power to do so and then trying to bring in th therapists to solve that problem and the next thing you know is something that's not really church go ahead roger that raises an interesting question because ken silva at apprising ministries and ingrid schluter at, at um, slice of laodicea have been taking Ray Comfort to task for going to preach the gospel at the Word of Faith thing. The Word of Faith yeah, conference. Yeah, I'm aware of that controversy. Yes. So should he go or shouldn't he? Well, that, that's that's something amongst people that so you know so-called discernment ministries. There's a dispute, and some would say that you shouldn't even preach in a context where there are people that are wrong or false or what have you. And other people, I think MacArthur, I've heard MacArthur say this, he says, I'll preach the true gospel anywhere. Because his compassion for the lost is, is not, the, yeah, there's false teachers at these things pre, that have been preaching to people that have been listening to false teachers. But what if God has some of his own that could be saved out of there? That's how MacArthur sees it. So I'll go preach to these people. And maybe some of them will get pulled out of there and say, hey, I hadn't heard this before. And so if that's what Ray Comfort's doing, I think he should, if that's what he is doing, he should say so. And let people, yeah. Okay. They went after him before the fact, and he responded in an, on Christian Worldview Network and directly to both of them, saying that he was going to preach the gospel. And their criticism to that was that, 
Well, he has to warn the false teachers, too. They put another condition on his going for him. Well, no, he's not, I don't know. He's not giving. The question is if, is, if you show up at a mixed event where there's various speakers, are you giving tacit endorsement to all the other speakers? I, let's just, here's something we need to be careful about. You can't, how, do you, how does the Bible tell us to judge somebody? Somebody just was telling me, oh, the MacArthur's speaking somewhere that I don't approve of, so there's, the MacArthur, MacArthur's false. You judge somebody by what they're preaching, not where they preach it. You could call, maybe Paul's no better than a philosopher because he went to the Mars Hill and, and preached to the philosophers. So is Paul guilty of everything that's ever been preached at Mars Hill? But I would agree that you need to openly correct those other false teachers so that it's obvious that you're not in cahoots with them. Now, personally, I wouldn't want to go there because I wouldn't want to see my picture with Rod Parsley. Cause I, can't. I couldn't. I, that would just be too much. That Rod, have you ever watched Rod Parsley? Oh, I watched him abusing this one church so so badly. It's, I could hardly even bear to watch it. He just abusive, jumping up on the thing and yelling at the people. Stand up, stand up, stand up, and they stand up. Sit down, put your arms out. You do what I tell you to do. And, this, and I go, quit yelling at the people and tell them about Jesus Christ. All right, that's enough on Rod Parsley. And then they break for a commercial. He's on the tarmac in front of his private jet. Well, pray for Ray Comfort, because he's going into the lion's den. <laughs> All right. But the reason for this topic is that we do need to realize that if God does have some of his own who, through no fault of their own, are in a church that they didn't change, it did, that God has compassion for those ones. And I want to do the best I can to help them. The best thing would be to try to find fellowship where everybody's on the same page with the gospel. Yes. So if Paul judged that the, many of the Galatians were unsaved and he also discerned that many of the Corinthians were saved, yeah. is that a model for us? Should we be saying, well, this group, probably most of them are saved, so I'm going to preach differently or teach differently or, or minister them dif- differently okay. than this group who's 30% saved or 10% saved or, or Okay, I, I think he, he was judging it based on what gospel they'd received and heard, not necessarily on his knowledge of how many of them are saved. In other words, the Galatians were receiving a false gospel and embracing a false gospel. So he anathematizes them on certain terms because you cannot be saved by a false gospel, right? The gospel of works doesn't save people. The Corinthians had not departed from the true gospel, but their problem was behavior problems, compromises in, with the pagans concerning these love feasts and immorality. Not that that doesn't deserve the most stern rebuke possible, and Paul did. He sent him a severe letter. It was so severe he was afraid it was going to blow him off the face of the earth. It was so severe. So he didn't want to go even see him after he sent that letter. It was so strong. So he sent Titus, hoping, and, and then he found they repented. So... But, it's, but if they got the true gospel, there's always some hope. But when you don't have the true gospel, let me give you an example, if I may say so. I went to a Lutheran funeral the other day, and the pastor, as she was giving the opening thing, says, so-and-so cashed in her baptism. I go, What? So you're baptized as a baby, and then when you die, you cash it in. Okay, St. Peter at the gate, you know, all the, you'll myth about that. And here's my baptism certificate. Now, God bless Jim Bukowski, because they had family sharing, and he was a relative, so he got up, and he said, well, Pastor talked about baptism. But I was looking at the, I was looking at these pictures, and here in 1929 was a picture of this person and my mother at their confirmation, and here's what they heard at their confirmation, and then he preached the gospel. 
<laughs> and so I'll uh, give Jim a big hug for doing that. God bless him. Now, here's the thing I wanted, that's not necessarily why I brought this up. What I was doing at the funerals, it was all liturgy, 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 you know, all the way through liturgy. So I was reading through the liturgy in the hymnal, because, you know, the Luthers put everything in the hymnal. The gospel's in there on every page. Gospel truth on page after page after page after page after page, because it was, you know, creeds and the Athanasian Creed and the, um, the confessions of sin. Here's what you say when you sin. Here's what you say. Here's what you believe. Here's what you confess. And so what would, what would we say? Well, I would say that there's plenty of gospel there for people to be saved if they believe it. But when you add to it things like baptismal regeneration as an infant, you're, you're, you're attacking the very gospel. that you're, uh, you, So you preach the gospel on one hand and attack it on another. And, and so you have a mixed bag there. I don't know what to say about it, but I would assume somebody there actually believes those things and knows the Lord. Right? But wouldn't it be a lot better if somebody preached it from a pulpit? And again, I, I'm going to get myself in trouble with all my Lutheran friends week after week here. But I'll say to my Lutheran friends, I commend you for having the truth of the gospel and preserving it. But I would also say that you need to seriously consider whether this baptismal doctrine that gives people assurance of salvation. I know the conservative Lutherans say, no, no, we don't believe that. Well, I'll tell you, I've hardly ever been to a Lutheran funeral. In fact, I don't think I've ever been to one where the pastor didn't say, so-and-so is in heaven because they're baptized. So if you don't believe that, then I'd say to you Lutherans, then police your own organization, because you sure got a lot of people out there teaching that. And that's, and that's damnable to tell people that something that their parents did is an assurance that they're going to go to heaven when they die. Okay, I guess I can't get in any more trouble today. Let's, let's go ahead here. <laughs> they had received the grace of God. Okay, why, now why was Paul confident about the Corinthian response to Titus? Because they'd received the Word of God, the Spirit of God was at work, chapter 1, 18 to 22, chapter 3, 2 and 3, and that Christ Jesus was in them, chapter 13 and verse 5, and they'd received the grace of God, chapter 6 and verse 1. Paul's confidence then was not in the Corinthians, but in God who was so evidently at work in their lives through the Spirit. So Paul's confidence was in God, not the Corinthians. So what our lesson is this. If we know someone and we believe that there's plenty of evidence that they know Christ and that there's a work of grace going on and the proud, that person is seriously compromised for whatever reason, we should have some hope that God will interact and intervene and do something good. We should always hold out hope for people that we believe are the Lord's. They're his sheep. He died for them. He loved them. He's committed to them. That doesn't mean we should be wishy-washy. Paul wasn't. He sent a severe letter. We may need to be very strict. We may even need to do church discipline. But we believe that in the end, God's going to bring back all of his sheep and get them into the fold and guard them from the wolves. So that's the process we're in today because the wolves have been having heyday in the church and we need to get the sheep gathered into the fold and safe. That's the job of the church. Now, verse 15, we're going to go to a concept here that is going to bring us back into the Old Testament. It says in verse 15, His affection abounds all the more toward you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. His affection bounds all the more, that's Titus, t- towards you as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. Now that term comes right out of the Septuagint of the Old Testament. And fear and trembling, as used in the Old Testament, was used as a response to people seeing that they faced God's wrath. So evidently this fear and trembling was when after Paul's severe letter, and then Titus' visit as a follow-up to it, the Corinthians became aware that they were standing on the precipice and facing God's wrath. And so the response of fear and trembling. Now, let's look that up. Let's start with Michael. Could you look up Exodus 15:16 and Robin, 
Isaiah 19.16. This is just a couple examples of the context in which we find fear and trembling in the Old Testament. The first one you'll probably... Well, we've preached through Exodus 15 already, so we've, we've covered that. But Exodus 15.16. Exodus 15.16. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as a stone... Till your people pass over, over, O Lord, till the people pass over whom you oh, yeah. have purchased. Okay. In that case, it was the song of Moses, and, or the, the song they sang at the event of the Passover, and fear and trembling was the Egyptian response to God's wrath being poured out on them because of the awe of God, seeing God and how awesome he is. And in Isaiah 19:16. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women. They will shudder with fear at the uplifted hand that the Lord Almighty raises against them. They will have fear, literally, fear and trembling. Shudder with fear is a translation of the idea of fear and trembling. And it's going to happen as God's wrath becomes revealed. Now, here's an interesting one. Uh, Larry, if you could look up 1 Corinthians 2.3, because Paul applies the same terminology to himself. Okay? So it can apply to... God's enemies when they are facing his wrath, or it can apply to a Christian in another way. 1 Corinthians 2, 3, we're going to look up fear and trembling. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. Yeah, Paul came to them with fear and trembling. Now, what happened in Acts? I hadn't thought of this one. Remember? No, I'm thinking about after he'd been in Athens and then he went from there. Remember his negative response in Athens? They mocked him. He was, at, he was on Mars Hill preaching to the Athenians and he preached Christ and the resurrection and the repentance and they mocked him. And then, yeah, there it is. I found it. I knew it was in there. Acts 18 after, it says here in verse 1, after these things he left Athens and went to Corinth. So this would be directly applicable to 1 Corinthians 2.3 where he said, I came to you in fear and trembling. Okay? So let's see how he came to them. And we'll read through verse 9. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, native of Pontus, having recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome he came to them. Now, this is a historically accurate statement. No surprise to us, because the Bible's true. But this happened, I believe, in 49 A.D. Does anybody, can anybody confirm that? I think it was 49 A.D. when Claudius ch- chased the Jews out of Rome. And it could have been because of the dispute about Christ. Because one of the historians says that there was this uproar because of a certain Christus. And maybe a Latin way of spelling Christ. And so possibly the gospel had come to Rome already. It's not accounted for like in Acts. And there was a dispute in, in some of the Jews. There was a lot of times persecution against the gospel. And so Claudius just kicked all the Jews out, figuring in their, whatever problem they're caused, get out. And so that gives us a timing here. It helps us understand this happened in 49 A.D., if I am remembering correctly. Okay, because, verse 3, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, and they were working for, by trade, they were tent makers. Verse 4, and he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath and trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, Messiah. And when they resisted and blasphemed, He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From now on I shall go to the Gentiles. He departed from there and went to the house of a certain man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God, whose house was next to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord and all his household. And many of the Corinthians, when they heard, were believing and being baptized. So the typical response to the gospel is persecution or faith. Paul never got a neutral response. And so God was saving a church there in Corinth, even though it was in the midst of a lot of persecution. All right? Now, look at verse 9. This is what's pertinent to 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 3. And the Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, 
Do not be afraid any longer, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. For I have many people in this city. And he settled there a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So this was not just a come through, preach the gospel, and go. He was a year and six months there, preaching the word. And God had told him to, to not be afraid. So when Paul said, I came to you in fear and trembling, he was talking about a real experience that he had. Because of, of the persecution and the rejection and the blasphemers and the negative response to the gospel. But he was reassured by the Lord. He said, I'm going to protect you. You're not going to be harmed. Just stay here. So the Lord told him that the Lord had a flock in that city that he was going to call forth and nurture. And I think that this experience that we can read about in Acts explains why Paul was as patient as he was with these Corinthians. He'd spent a year and a half with them. The Lord had already told him to stay there and that he, was, that he had people there. And even the leader of the synagogue believed so they had a group of people that they could start to work with and establish a church. So Paul said, I came in fear and trembling, not the kind of fear and trembling one has facing God's wrath, but in his case, facing severe persecution. But God comforted him and strengthened him. So the fear and trembling in this case, in verse 15, would be the fact that they realized that they were in serious error and serious sin, and that they were facing God's discipline, and they needed to repent. That's how I interpret that. Okay, I have some more cross-references. Casey, could you do Psalm 2 and verse 11? And then, uh, Patrick, you, you two are sharing a Bible? For now. For now? <laughs> okay, I'll go on here to Ben. Psalm 119, 120. Jeremy, Isaiah 66, 2. And Brian, do you want to read one? You don't mind? Yes, if I don't know your name. Gloria, Gloria, could you read Philippians 2 and verse 12? Philippians 2 and verse 12? Okay. Psalm 211 is what I wrote down. Mm -hmm. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Okay, there's fear and trembling. Serve the Lord with fear and then say rejoice with trembling. Mm -hmm. Interesting combination of rejoice and trembling. And so we know that our God is an awesome God and there's a certain fear or reverence um, but on the other hand, we know that the blood of Jesus has washed away our sins, so we have access to the holy place, for it, uh, as it says in Hebrews. So both things are true. Psalm 119 and, and verse 120. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Okay. So the psalmist trembles in fear of the Lord. Isaiah 66, 2. Has not my hand made all these things, and so they came into being, declares the Lord. This is the one I esteem, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Ah, so God esteems the one who trembles at his word. Why would somebody tremble at God's word? Yeah, it's an interesting thing. Remember that? Remember that essay that we put on the reference links by Jerry Bridges about gospel-driven sanctification? He made, a, he made a point that I thought was important. The more someone actually is sanctified, the more they don't see themselves as sanctified. Yeah, yeah, right. It, 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 he's dead right about that. The person who is mo, more sanctified over by God's grace trembles more because you realize how holy God is and how sinful we are. But when sanctification is lacking, we tend to think, well, the good Lord is just happy and it doesn't matter. And we tend to not see our own need very seriously. So the closer we get to the Lord, the more we tremble at his word because we really know I really am a sinner. And so Paul was trembling. Yes. Uh, go ahead and read your verse. Sorry. <laughs> Philippians, yeah. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Oh, great verse. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So here we see 
that as a Christian experience, fear and trembling is a good thing. Now, why would, well, we just talked about fear and trembling would accompany working out your salvation because it's a holy God that we are approaching. And we realize that we fall short in many ways. And James says we all stumble in many ways. I don't believe anybody who claims to have been entirely sanctified who claims to be sinless. It's just not true. Remember uh, Ryan was preaching on 1 John 1 on that topic? Um, <laughs> there were, I remember when I was in Bible college, there was this group that believed that they had, these people believed that they were sinless. And, and they, got into, they got into debate with some people that told them they weren't, and the sinless ones got so mad, I thought they were going to punch the other guy. <laughs> okay. I just have one thing to say. Positionally, in Christ, we are sinless because he imputes his perfect righteousness to us positionally. So you must be referring to practically. practically. Yeah, that's a good distinction. Uh, Thank you, Coralie. There's a difference between positional and and practical sanctification. Positional is the imputed righteousness of Christ. And we receive that the moment we're converted. So the moment we're converted, the blood of Jesus washes away our sins. And so you see the balance in this, if you want to call it balance or the... Two, not, not, when I mean balance, I don't mean the two things that are actually contradictory, because contradictions are meaningless. Two truths that complement each other. The truth that we're totally holy in God, in Christ, through the blood, and the truth that God is causing us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, because we have a ways to go, right? So... 1 John 1 and 2 really deals with that in a very nice way, and I'm glad Ryan's preaching through it, because he says, if we say we have no sin, it says in there, then we're a liar. Okay? And I think that applies to anybody. I don't have any sin, so I have no more need. No, you can't say that. But on the other hand, we have, an advocate, we confess our sins, we have an advocate with the Father, the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us, and so on. Yes, Casey. So Wesleyan theology, do they not think that we can come to a point where we are sanctified um, and we no longer sin? How do they get around those verses? If that's too, too much of a tangent, you don't have to answer. Okay, um, she's asking about Wesleyan theology. Yeah, they, they did have this concept of perfection. You can read historical material about it. it uh, Wesley... It was kind of a mixed bag. He wasn't so, so egregious himself. If you read his sermons and you read, he really, really wasn't a person who wrote a theology per se, so you have to just read sermons and stuff. A lot of the material you, you read from Wesley is, is really good. If you didn't know any better, you'd think he wasn't a Wesleyan. Uh, so I think he had been fairly well trained, plus he was in the context of some really good teaching. But on the other hand, if you read other material that came out of the perfectionist movement, it's, it's really bad. Okay? And then you come to Finney, who picked up a worse version of it and created basically works righteousness and human ability. And uh, anybody that really believed Finney's theology and still had assurance of salvation was seriously arrogant. Okay? And Finney's idea was this moral government theory of the atonement. Anybody heard about the moral government? It's still around, still being taught. And it is a, it's so works-oriented and so based on human ability that people who end up embracing it, even... And I heard a story about a, a guy who had been a, a solid, sincere Christian for 60 years and was, not too many years before he passed away, read a book written by one of the moral gov- government theorists and he came away with the conclusion that he wasn't saved. Now, the reason he came away with that conclusion was because he is saved. And let me tell you why. <laughs> that seems ironic. If you put a true Christian under moral government teaching, they will lose their assurance of salvation because they know they're not sinlessly perfect, as that teaching says you, have, you are, you can be, and you have to be. All right? free from all conscious sin. And, 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 and so why does that theory of the atonement harm people? Because instead of the blood of Jesus averting God's wrath against our sin, the atonement, according to moral government, was just demonstrating how much God hates sin 
so that you see that God hates sin, so that you're warned you better not sin. And I'm doing a nutshell. They have, there's more complexities to that. And I am willing to call that a heresy anytime I hear it, anytime I see it. And you, you will rob the true Christians of their assurance and give the prideful ones false assurance. That's the problem. Okay, so the balance, I wouldn't, the balance meaning this, we know that the blood of Jesus continually washes away our sin. And that should we die, we'll go to, be, to heaven to be with him, not because we're sinless, but because we have the imputed righteousness of Christ. We overcome the accuser by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. And we love not our lives unto death. But on the other hand, the closer we get to the holy God that we serve, the more aware of our own sinfulness we become. But on the other hand, we have the assurance that the blood of Jesus washes away our sin. So that's why we need to continually preach both things. A guy asked MacArthur one day, when you, as you are progressively sanctified, do you ever sin less? And MacArthur said, uh, the good news is yes, the bad news is it bothers you more. <laughs> yeah, that's a good answer. The, the good news is you do sin less. The bad news is it bothers you more. You didn't hear that. <laughs> I, I agree with that. MacArthur is dead on. So, now the trouble we were having with the Corinthians, as we talked, was they were sinning more, and, and it was bothering them less. <laughs> and that's why they needed a, a healthy dose of fear and trembling through the severe letter and Titus's, <laughs> Titus's visit. <laughs> okay, one more verse in this chapter. I rejoice that in everything I have confidence in you. Confidence here is a little different word than we saw earlier. Uh, this one, thareo, and it can mean courage, or it can mean boldness, or even confidence as it's translated here. And um, there's, there's an inclusio going on here. Remember what an inclusio is? It's, it's, it's ideas that bracket a thought. You start with the idea, you develop it, and you end with it. That's an inclusio. It's a, it's a literary device. But this one's a long one. Uh, it started in verse 4, so we've got to go back a ways. And what we see between verse 4 and verse 12 in this inclusio is joy. Or it's not verse 12. Verse uh, 16 is joy is a theme. And it's found many times, but verse 4 says, Great is my confidence, in this case, a different word, parousia, boldness, pros, towards you. Great is my boasting on your behalf. I am filled with comfort. I am overflowing with joy. So he talks about confidence and joy in verse 4. And then you see in verse 16, rejoice, same word joy, only a different form, and confidence. And in between, you see the themes mentioned a couple of other times. But this inclusio sort of starts and begins the section where he explains his reaction to their reception of Titus and their response to his severe letter. The term joy is used also in verse 13, the joy of Titus. And I believe in verse 7, I rejoiced more. So now we have a theme here of joy and rejoicing. And the inclusio of verse 16 wraps up the entire section. Uh, I have a passage. Where's the mic at this point? Robert, you haven't done one. 2 Thessalonians 3 and verse 4. 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 4. Rejoice and joy. You know, there's, there's no greater joy than to see God working graciously in somebody's life especially somebody we love. Actually, it's a rejoice no matter who it is. But even if somebody we hadn't known before. I love it. I get emails from people that tell me how God's done a great work in their lives. <laughs> and they rejoice in the gospel. Yes, go ahead. Second Thessalonians 3, verse 4. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Okay, so Paul expressed confidence that the Thessalonians 
would respond in obedience to what he has said to them. Let's talk a little bit here. I've got about ten minutes about sanctification, which is the topic we're on today. The issue that's important is a willingness and an agreement with what God has said. In other words, we believe that whatever are the terms of the new covenant is binding. Right? That Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus is the greater Moses. Jesus is the lawgiver of the new covenant. He's the one that in Deuteronomy 18, Moses said, I will, God will raise up a prophet like me. Listen to him. And it's clear, and I've preached on this many times, especially at our conferences, that the New Testament writers' claim was that the greater prophet that was like Moses that God raised up was Jesus. And even the people who became his critics in John 6 said, this is the prophet. And God himself said so on the Mount of Transfiguration where it says, this is my son, listen to him. Echoing, and Moses was there as a witness on the Mount of Transfiguration that this is the one. Listen to him. And he even uses the term exodus in Luke. They were talking about his exodus. So, so Jesus is the greater prophet. Jesus, the greater prophet, like Moses, is the mediator of a covenant, in this case the new covenant, and he's the one who's a lawgiver concerning the terms of the covenant. And he spoke authoritatively, and he gave the apostles and prophets the authority to speak in his name, according to Ephesians, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. The material that was given to the church by God's prophets and apostles, the writers of the New Testament, came directly from Jesus Christ. That's why the apostles had to have been an eyewitness of the Christ come in the flesh. And they spoke for God. So every true Christian must be willing to put themselves under the authority of that truth that's revealed. That's, that's our... <laughs> Well, what's, how do you say the Latin phrase? Sine qua non? Does, doesn't that mean without which not? I think that's right. Well, you know, there's enough smart people that listen to this that if I get it wrong, I know, uh, Herb, I know you're listening. You'll send me an email and you'll either tell me I got my Latin right or my Latin wrong. <laughs> I have a friend, Herb, out in California who knows Latin and then when you get it wrong, he tells me he's a nice guy. I believe that sine qua non means without which not. So if you're not willing to be under the authority of Jesus Christ, you're rejecting the terms of the covenant. And if we're able to establish what is binding according to Jesus Christ, then we have to accept it as binding. Now, as we're saying, we're not claiming that we've achieved sinless perfection, but we're agreeing with what God said. And we're agreeing that we want God to do a work of grace so that we'd look more, as we walk in life, we would look more and more like what those terms say. That we'd turn the other cheek, that we'd love our enemies, and that what Jesus said is true and binding would actually be true about us. That's true for Christians. Now, the big problem comes when someone becomes defiant. And this is what the book of Hebrews is about. And the book of Hebrews, in many ways, is commentary on Numbers chapter 15. The warnings about apostasy in Hebrews are based conceptually on ideas you find in Numbers 15. And here's Numbers 15. In Numbers 15, it makes a distinction between the unintentional sin and the defiant sin. And it says, if anyone sins defiantly, he, he he shall not be forgiven, and he's outside of the covenant. Now, what does it mean to sin defiantly? Well, what it means is somebody says, I don't have to abide by the terms of the covenant. I claim a right not to. So somebody, so it's the day of atonement, and, and you're supposed to do go to, you know, the scapegoat, the sacrifices, the high priest. This is the day of atonement. So the people who sinned unintentionally, meaning they're not claiming a right to, are coming and say, yes, I know I sinned. Here's the sacrifice. I accept the terms of the covenant. The blood is, is shed. The high priest goes in. And their sins are forgiven. That's what it says. 
But the defiant person, it's, it says they won't be forgiven because they're, they're not agreeing to the terms of the covenant. Now, that's precisely what the entire book of Hebrews is about because we have a greater one than Moses. We have a greater law. If the law given by angels was awesome, and we're talking about Sinai, how much more the one who is speaking to us from heaven, Jesus Christ. He, God has spoken in his son in these last days. God has spoken through his apostles. This is all in Hebrews 1 and 2. And you are rejecting those terms and you're wanting to go back. And you want to go back to an inferior covenant with inferior terms and inferior sacrifices. And in so doing, you are in danger of apostasy and rejecting your salvation. Okay, Cheryl. So are you saying then that um, defiant sin is premeditated? Well, it's more than just premeditated. I don't know if unintentional means we're saying, oh, I didn't mean to do that. I think that what it means is this. I agree to the terms, but I know that I failed, and I'm confessing that I did. You know, uh, whether we can get inside of our own heads and say, okay, how long did I think about that before I did it? Okay. (laughs) Yeah, but there's premeditated murder. There's premeditated murder, which you know, has been planned and schemed and worked out and all that. But sometimes there is murder in self-defense and they'll plea bargain and reduce the charges to manslaughter. Okay, you're talking about case law, and they have that in the Old Covenant. I'm going to be talking about it in my sermon. But the New Testament isn't set up so much like case law, although we do make some, you know, we do try to determine what is true and what is right. Remember the Pharisees had this whole system of case law and they had like these layers and layers and layers trying to figure these things out the new testament doesn't have that kind of system it just has principles that guide us to show us what's right and what's wrong and what's sin and what's not now back to my thought it wasn't we don't have to try to get inside of our own heads how the fact is we sin and we admit it's a sin and we agree to the terms we know we need the blood and we and we turn from it and we ask god to help us now I was going to tell you the story of the, the alcoholic that we were counseling back in the 70s. And uh, she says, she, she called, and somebody else was supposed to be counseling her, but I got the call. She goes, I said, what's wrong? I found myself in the bar. <laughs> I says, you found yourself in the bar? <laughs> yep. I said, all right, let's backtrack a little bit here. What did you do today during the day? Oh, well, I went to work. I said, okay, that's good. What did you do after work? Well, I went to the liquor store. Why did you go to the liquor store when you're an alcoholic? Oh, I was going to buy a quart of whiskey for my boss for his birthday. Okay. What did you do after you buy the quart of whiskey? Well, I got some for me, too. And I, and I drank it. And then what did you do? Well, then I got drunk and I went to the bar and drank some more. Okay, so you found yourself in the bar. <laughs> no, you drove yourself to the bar. <laughs> so in that case, the problem is not taking accountability for what you did, right? Now, the person, the unintentional means all of the terms we embrace to be true, whatever they may be. I'm not saying that everybody understands them as well, and there's some disputable issues that... Christians have had a hard time to, you know, agreeing or disagreeing about over the centuries, but most of the terms are very clear. And we're just saying, I know that I sin, and I need the blood of Jesus to cleanse it. I know that that's true, and I don't defiantly say I have a right to. That's where I take issue with these hyper-dispensationalists who are disputing the terms of the covenant and rejecting everything that Jesus taught on the grounds that it's not binding on the church. So I would say that they're teaching people to practice defiant sin. They're teaching people, you can say to Jesus Christ, I know you said to turn the other cheek, but I refuse to do that because that's not binding on me. We're still going to write about this because I, I keep running into these, this stupid teaching that Jesus has no authority over his own church. It's unbelievable. So the point is, now let's, let me get back to what I was saying. So we have terms that were given to us by Jesus and his apostles, all of which are binding. We have sinners saved by grace who are not claiming to perfectly obey everything. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I was reading those Lutheran confessions. I want to go back to that funeral. I was in a Lutheran funeral. I was reading their confessions. And, and it was a really interesting confession. One of them I read was this. We confess that we have not loved God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and soul. And we confess that we have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. I told him about the funeral and the baptism and how Jim preached the gospel. I hope that's okay. Okay, thank you, Diane. <laughs> yeah, she cashed in her baptism. <laughs> so Jim gets up and says, well, wait a second here. <laughs> I was proud of him. But I was reading those confessions. That, you know what? Is that appropriate? I think it is. I would think it's very appropriate to say I haven't loved God with my, all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I haven't loved my neighbor as myself. So the question is, why would God command something if we know we're, not, we're going to fall short of it? And that's Finney's reasoning. Finney said, he won't. If, if God said it, you can do it. You just go out and do it. Uh, no. The commands reflect the holiness of God. God in his holiness cannot command anything other than what is according to his truth and his nature. And, and God's holiness is such that, yes, we must love our enemies because God loves his enemies. Yes, we must love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength because it's only the right thing to do. God can't command less than what's right. Okay? But with the command comes the grace and mercy to have forgiveness through the blood of Jesus while the Holy Spirit progressively puts more love for God in our hearts, more love for neighbor in our hearts, more love for our enemies in our hearts. And we could still go back, and I think there's nothing wrong with that Lutheran confession. We confess that we have not loved God with our whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves. But the problem, what I disagree with is putting that in a liturgy and reading it every Sunday. I think pretty soon you're not taking seriously whether you did it or didn't do it. All right, I went and I read the thing. All right, I'm done with that. Now, I'm not saying everybody does it. I'm sure some take it seriously. But... It's a good thing to remember we haven't loved God with our whole heart and we haven't loved neighbor as itself and that God wants us to do it. And, but thank God we have the Holy Spirit who pours out the love of God within us. It, it overflows. The love of God overflows from within. And we're certainly, I'll guarantee I'm more loving than I was an hour before I got saved when I was a blasphemer. I was blaspheming God and cursing man. Right, Dee Dee? <laughs> She's a witness. <laughs> I was cursing and blaspheming and uttering threats. And two hours later, I love God and I love neighbor. That's the Holy Spirit. So I thank God for his work of grace in your life and that you are growing in his love. God bless you and we'll see you upstairs.